1: Hello there, and welcome to a brand new Arseblog ArsCast right here on ArsBlog.com. Hope you're well. Football, eh? Why do we do it to ourselves? Honestly, what do we get out of it apart from occasional joy, friendships, social events, something to help pass our time, excitement, sense of community, finding other people who have a shared passion and interest, laughter, hilarity? Bad things happening to people we don't like. But apart from that, what do we get out of it? It's been a very, very frustrating week from a football point of view, I have to tell you. Not just from an Arsenal point of view either. What happened to me on Tuesday night really should have been a precursor. Almost like a warning sign of what was going to happen to us in the Champions League. Tuesday night is the night uh, ever since I've come back from Spain, 2006, uh, I've played for An Astro team we play, 11 aside Astro. And over the years, we've had our our ups and downs. We really have. I don't know whether there have been more downs than ups, but we've been like this consistently mid-table team forever. Apart from one year when we came second and we had to beat Google 13-0 in order to win the league. I think we only beat them 7-0. And that's because Google were playing a Spanish guy who wore trousers. Honestly, he wore trousers. Playing football, but anyway, that's beside the point. But every Tuesday night, Astro, eleven aside, and this year, well, it's been difficult to get the team together, so we've we've d- decided to call it quits. It's a bit of a shame, but look, hey, everything runs its course. Maybe we'll be back next summer. I don't know. But we had our final game on Tuesday evening. Final game. It's been emotional. So the first goal that we concede entirely my fault, gave the ball away, guy ran in on goal, scored, like 100% my fault, terrible stepanovs esque defending, not even defending, you wouldn't call it, I had the ball, I should have just passed it back to the keeper, tried a fancy pass into midfield, cut out, oh god, but anyway, a bit later on in the game, after they scored another goal, which had nothing to do with me at all, it wasn't my fault, Uh, after that goal, free kick, had a free kick, 25, 30 yards out, and I'm quite good at free kicks. I've scored good few down the years. So I'm thinking, okay, here's my chance at redemption. I'm going to line up this free kick. I'll get us back into the game. It's going to be awesome. Our final game, it's going to happen, I know it. So I'm looking at the wall, I'm looking at the ball, I'm looking where the keeper is. I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. It's slightly right uh, of center. Actually, maybe four or five yards right of of center, 25, 30 yards out. Okay, here we go. Stepped up, curled it over the wall. It's going in. It's 100% going in. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, I see this hand come out. Oh, no, it's been saved. Except it wasn't saved by the goalkeeper. It was saved by one of their centre-halves. The big fucker. Denying me a historic goal on our last game. He just reached out a hand. Saved it, palmed it away. Got a yellow card for his troubles. 5 minutes sin bin. And we got a penalty, which our uh, centre-forward took and, and scored. Talk about gutted, though. Get a free kick going in and... Center half. If the keeper makes a save, well, fine. Okay. Well done, keeper. But the center half, well, boo! I say. So denied a goal on our final ever astro game, and we lost in the end 2-1. An inauspicious end to our to our team's career. Division six social level astro will never be the same again without us. But look, if that wasn't a uh, sign of things to come this week, well, I don't know what was. Not that I believe in signs or anything like that, but. You know, Feels kind of apt, given what happened on Wednesday night in Zagreb, which was, frankly, terrible. A bad performance, a bad result, and uh, it's easy to understand frustration and unhappiness with that. The changes that the manager made that we all expected him to make, well, they didn't really work. Olivier Giroud got himself sent off. Kieran Gibbs with the, the saddest little jump that you'll ever see. What was that about? Kind of jumped under the ball, just looking mournfully down at his feet. Didn't even look at the ball. Guy heads in two nil. We're down. Oxley Chamberlain and Debushi not much good for the first goal. Down to ten men. Then with, uh, in the fortieth minute, and uh, although Theo Walcott got one back, we couldn't couldn't find an equaliser. And we probably, in fairness, did not deserve an equaliser. There's been a lot of inquisition, a lot of analysis about what happened, why it is that we allowed Dinamo Zagreb to win their first Champions League group game since 1999. Why did we do that? I don't know. Football, eh? It's not the first time this has happened, though, and it is just the first game of the Champions League campaign. So I do wonder, perhaps, if some of the reaction to the performance and the result was a little bit over the top. I'm not saying people shouldn't be unhappy, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be frustrated because I am unhappy and I'm frustrated with it, but we still have time to turn it around. There are five other games to go in this group stage. I guess, though, people aren't necessarily that confident in our ability to do what we need to do in those other games. We've got three, uh, two against Olympiacos, another one against Dinamo Zagreb, and then, of course, two against Bayern Munich. Now, those are going to be pretty difficult. We have had plenty of run-ins with Bayern in the past, and we've beaten them. And we've drawn with them, so it's not unthinkable that we can get something from those games, home and away. But of course you want to be winning the games like Zagreb, like Olympiacos, because if you don't, then you're going, to be, you're going to be in real trouble. So maybe that's where it is. But look, it is frustrating because you beat Stoke 2-0, you think, okay, it's going to be all good, you know, we're going to get some of that whole uh, momentum thing going. Go away, win, that'll restore some confidence. Then we go to Chelsea, and then we've got Tottenham, and then we, you know, it's and Leicester. We've got Leicester, top of the table almost. So, you know, it's tricky games coming up. And just when you begin to have a little bit of faith that this team can do what you expect it to do, they do something like that the other night. But look, we'll talk about that now in a moment with our, with our first guest. Two guests for you today. First up, Tim Stillman. We'll be discussing the week that was with him. And a little bit later on, I'll be talking to John Cross from the Daily Mirror, who has uh, just written a book about Arsene Wenger um called the inside story of Arsenal under Wenger which is uh, I think launched last night in the Tollington I'll chat to him about the book why it came about etc cetera, etc cetera. some of the behind the scenes bits and pieces uh, with all that and we'll uh, we'll touch on a few few other areas as well that'll be John Cross a little bit later on but now let's continue the uh, the Arsenal chat and try and discuss What happened this week, what went wrong, and uh, what we can do to fix it, particularly as we've got a rather big game coming up on Saturday against, uh, you know, those cunts, Chelsea. That's right. So joining me first, as I said, Tim Stillman. Hello there.
2: Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whenever you're listening.
1: Let's begin with what happened in Zagreb. Rotation... I guess, was expected. People, you know, before the game were were aware that the manager was going to make some changes, perhaps not Mm -hmm. quite as many changes as he did. Um, And and I understood most of them, in fairness, apart from Ospina, uh, who I don't really think had had, uh, much to do with what what happened on the night. Mm But it would be fair to say that the guys that came in didn't grasp their chance to to put themselves into the manager's thinking.
2: No, definitely not. I I think uh, I was surprised by the amount of rotation. I was expecting three or four changes, but perhaps not five or six and certainly not the goalkeeper. Mm. Um, I think had this game been on Tuesday night and perhaps Chelsea been on Sunday, I think you might have seen a slightly different team. Um, But I think he, he clearly had Stamford Bridge in his mind. But nevertheless, I think that team was certainly good enough to get a better result and certainly put in a better performance um, I think you know the likes of Gibbs and Debuucci didn't really stake their claim, probably neither did arteta really i don't I don't think he did an awful lot wrong, but didn't really grab any attention um and I suppose the caveat is at the moment the likes of Gibbs and debui they're playing very infrequently at the moment, you know they're playing once a month at the most and very few players thrive um, when they're getting that kind of patchy game time. And actually the guys that have kind of come in and replaced them, you look at Bellerin and Momrae, they didn't look as good as they're looking at the moment when they were playing infrequently. It's taken them both a nice kind of run of games um, mm-hmm. to really cement their place. And its I, th- I think it's difficult really to come in um, and really show your best form when you're in and out of the side. One thing I, I do hope is I think we'll see... A pretty similar team against Tottenham in the Capital One Cup and hopefully some of those guys first off will have worked out some of the rustiness perhaps that we saw um, and secondly hopefully a lot of them will feel like they've got a point to prove um, and that will feel that they could and should be playing a lot better um, and that we'll see that at White Hart Lane next week that we'll mm. see a reaction from those players as well as a bit more rhythm i suppose
1: yeah i mean what how it's difficult to find the balance obviously when you're not playing regularly it is hard to find rhythm and form and be as sharp as you would be if you had five or ten consecutive games under your belt i think everybody mm. appreciates that and understands that in which case you might ask okay so why did the manager make quite so many changes um but also if someone like matthew Debussy is complaining that he has been left out of the side this is this is the 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 chance for him to show Arsene Wenger that uh, you know he's got what it takes to be the number one right back instead what he's done is essentially cement bellerin's position uh, as the first choice right back and i've got no issue with that i like bellerin mm-hmm. a lot i think he's absolutely fantastic but there is also an onus on these players to take these chances when they
3: come along
2: Definitely, definitely. The, the the thing I think you'd say about those players is um, generally our Champions League campaigns tend to end fairly early in the new year. And actually, the, while we're in the Capital One Cup and while we're in the group stages, you know things are, tend to be a little bit busier for Arsenal in the first half of the season compared to the second half. So actually, some of these guys should get a few more chances yet. Um, Wenger himself made reference to the fact before this period of games that he was going to have to rotate. Uh, and obviously it's incumbent upon those guys to take their chances. Um, but, you know, this time last year, you look at the likes of Ospina, Bellerin, Coquelin, you know, none of those those guys weren't really anywhere near the team and you wouldn't have predicted this time last year that they'd be in it. So really, they should serve as some kind of inspiration that that while the likes of Debussy and Gibbs definitely cemented um you know unwittingly cemented their status as backups um that things can change very very quickly form can change quickly injuries can come in and they can get those chances and even if they don't i still think that players like that will get plenty of game time certainly before christmas um and you know there's there's plenty of success stories around them in the squad it you know it is a balance and mm. to be honest I tend to think if you can't rotate away at a team who hasn't won in the Champions League for X amount of years, then when can you rotate? Mm. And particularly with the game we've got coming up on Saturday and particularly with the scheduling, when it comes, it comes, you know, it's Wednesday night to Saturday lunchtime. That's a pretty short time, really. And I think that's why we saw the amount of rotation we did. And uh, I, I still think we had more than enough to win that game.
1: So you're saying it's probably too early or too soon after one game this season to draw definitive conclusions about the men that make up the bench?
2: It's, yes. Yes, (laughs) revolutionary thought.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I think we all, what it does obviously when something like uh, uh, Wednesday night happens. Is it confirms all the worst fears that people have about mm. the 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 squad's ability to compete and for us to be able to rotate? Uh, but it is it is just one game, and and we have had our accidents in Europe before. So um, definitely, we we yeah we we have you know we have some experience of of turning things like this around. Olivier Giroud though, mm. um, it's it's not going well for him. In general, no. Uh, no. despite the fact that he scored more goals than anybody in the team <laughs> this season, uh, he, he leads the way with two. Uh, he, he cuts a very unhappy figure at this moment in time. Um, the, the goal celebration against uh, Stoke at the weekend was fairly mm. muted. And you could see that he was a guy who, to me, looked a bit sorry for himself, a bit self-pitying in the way that he reacted to, to certain situations. I have mm. sympathy for the second yellow card because I thought it was a pretty nothing foul. But when you put yeah. yourself in a position uh, with the first yellow card, it's very difficult to have to have sympathy for him. And again, I I, I do feel um, like he he is becoming a lightning rod for for some of the wider issues or concerns that people have about the squad. But he's mm. not doing himself any favors either, is he?
2: No, and I I mean you can almost see the storm cloud above his above his head at the moment. And I think it was very telling. You know, I, I understood the kind of muted celebration against Stoke, but I thought what was really telling was that the entire team ran to him. And, um, and you know, that's, that's very nice and speaks well of the camaraderie. But what it also says is that they all know because they spend, you know, they train with this guy every day and they're all, you know, friends with him, presumably. Yeah. So they know what, you know, they'll have a good handle on what his mental state is at the moment. And the fact that they all ran over to him suggested that they all felt they needed to do that because they know that he's a bit Kind of down in the dumps, and really what happened to him in Zagreb um on Wednesday, I think it summed up Arsenal's performance, really, in that I think to some extent he was punished to the maximum and beyond for what he did um you know you've got to have sympathy with him on the first, not the descent but the foul which was given against him, mm. which. You know, I, I certainly understand why he was upset about the decision to then rant at the referee in the way he did. You know, that suggests that he's he's feeling very frustrated at the moment. He probably took it out on the referee. Likewise, I think the referee rather took it out on him thereafter, which I don't think a terribly professional thing for a ref to do. But at the same time, yes, there is a kind of, there's a sense that Giroud slightly invited it. Um, I've got an awful lot of sympathy on the second foul. I just think it's an absolutely nothing foul. I think he just dangles his foot, misses it by the ball by a fraction of a second. And I think the ref, I don't think the ref would have booked any other player on the pitch for that foul at that moment. Yeah, I
1: agree with you there.
2: But like you say, you kind of leave yourself open to it at the moment. And it's just kind of, it's indicative of our performance, really. We, We made some kind of, errors, some bigger than others. I thought in the first half we made a couple of errors where we were punished to the absolute maximum. I mean that first goal, Debushi and Chamberlain, you know, there's a lot of questions to ask of them. But ultimately the goalkeeper's there just in case the defence um, you know, doesn't do its job and Ospina comes out, he makes a really good save. He does everything you'd want a goalkeeper to do in that scenario. And then the ball just flies in off of somebody's knee and I've seen the goal a few times and I still can't work out who it is. I'm
1: pretty sure it's up to the
2: Chamberlain. Yeah. And there's a there's a degree at the end of ill fortune to that because the defence doesn't do its job. Goalkeepers called into action, does its job. And there's a little bit of ill fortune in that goal even if we were culpable in the build up to it. And it's this it's kind of similar with the red card. It's an incredibly soft red card, but we kind of invited um, we invited that scenario. We contributed slightly to our own downfall, um, and you know, it's that—that's not going to do Giroud an awful lot of good because he's effectively been probably overly punished. Even mm. if he did, you know, slightly, slightly leave the door open for the referee to do that, and you know, he, he's obviously a guy who's quite sensitive, um, you yeah. know, to, and he's definitely. You know, he's prone to good and bad bouts of form and at the moment, you know, it's it's very, very obvious that he's in a bad place mentally, and I I worry about, you know, this compounding that really.
1: Yeah, I mean but but at the same time, let's you know, that's fine and look, I I, I think there's too much of a tendency to to ignore or, or overlook the human element of footballers and mm. you know, uh and just see them as things that should operate in a certain way outside the bounds of whatever the rest of us go through in terms of how we feel about stuff. But here is a top athlete, um, yep. very well paid. If he's frustrated, if he's feeling a little unhappy with his lot, the way to respond to that is with uh, a top performance or at yep. least the the effort that would try and create a top performance. And it's something I spoke about a couple of weeks ago with James on the RS Cast Extra, that you just feel with Giroud that he... (sighs) He's just a bit too soft. That he, yeah. he he tends to become too introspective, or he looks at the sky, or he looks at the ref, or he looks at the ground, and he throws his arms up in the air. Where if he could channel fifty percent of that energy into doing a little bit more, or being a bit more physical, you know, the 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 return on that, I think, would be would be a better player.
2: Definitely, and and he's certainly physically big enough to, you know, to really bully a centre half, which you don't. He's he's very strong. Um, you know, contesting the ball, but you don't often see him. Usually he stands, what I'd say is in his best form, he stands up to a beating from a centre-half, but he doesn't beat on the centre-half, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't really impose himself, and he's certainly got the physical frame to do it. It was interesting because it, it ended up being really badly timed, but prior to the Monaco game last year, when he was in really good form, and he gave this interview saying, you know, the manager said to me, that I, I give too much away emotionally. And um, I'm not sure he cited the best example in Diego Costa, who I think is a fairly emotional player, to say the least. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, you look at Costa, if he misses a chance, he shows you nothing. You know, his, fa- his facial expression is blank and he goes back and scores the next one. And that's what I need to do. And then obviously he has that game against Monaco where he does the complete opposite. So, I mean, obviously he's he said himself he's aware of it, and that the coaching staff have identified it to him. So I mean he he knows on a very conscious level that this is an issue for him. And, and maybe it's just you know, too
1: too intrinsic to his character to, it, to change at this point it, in his life. He's twenty nine, I think. So
2: could well be. It could well be, yes. And it's and, and that's Certainly a concern.
1: Mm. I mean, you know, you, you could look at Theo Walcott as somebody who he could take an example of. Um, you know, the the misses that he did against Stoke, <laughs> he just kind of turns around and yeah, thumbs up to Bellerin, who's going, what the, how the fuck did you miss that? And he turns around, he's like, thumbs up, I got the next one. Or, you just know. Completely impervious. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something uh, that he needs to do with that. So um, at the weekend then, you know, I think we were looking at, at Stoke and Zagreb as two games that could get us a little bit of momentum going into the game mm. at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that there's any silver lining at all about uh, losing in midweek, but but is it the sort of thing that could perhaps refocus players or, or, or make them work even harder to, to try and prove a point because they must be feeling the pressure and the manager himself must also be feeling the pressure um, you know we know he doesn't read social media um, mm. which is a good thing but, <laughs> but you know that, that, uh, that they can't be impervious to the way people are feeling particularly uh, so, so soon after the transfer window closed and nobody came in there, there is this pressure to perform uh, mm. and, and to, to win games
2: yeah, definitely. I mean, in the long term, there's obviously the question: should they keep needing these kind of kicks up the backside? But oh. um, in if you're looking for a kind of short-term fix, because the games, you know, they're coming thick and fast at the moment. It's very close. Then, you know, hopefully, um, I, I think also there was a fair amount of dysfunction in the team that he chose um, for Zagreb. You know, Arteta and Kazola together that was a at weird base mix. in the yeah. midfield. Yeah, not not a great mix. I think, um, I make reference to this in my column this week, I think that front three is fairly dysfunctional. Um, Alexis and Giroud never really combined to any meaningful level and there wasn't really much, even when Giroud was on, there wasn't really much the same rotation between those three guys behind the striker that you usually see. And so I I think, you know, if there's a criticism of the starting lineup, it's for me it's probably not so much the amount that he changed, but some of the partnerships weren't weren't quite there. Mm-hmm. Um and I think on Saturday at Chelsea, um, you know, I think most of us could probably predict the starting eleven um on the nose really and and hopefully we'll see a little bit a little bit kind of less dysfunction. Um because the lot you know, the last couple of games it's started to come together a little bit. Um I think we can worry Chelsea a bit with our movement I don't think Giroud was going to play anyway I think that's why he started last night I think he'll start with Walcott up top um, and although I'm not saying I'm expecting Walcott to dominate Terry and Cahill in, in any serious way I, I still think that we've got a better chance by trying to kill them with movement rather than you know the strength that Giroud offers I think that's a much more comfortable challenge mm. for their centre halves so I mean, what's, hopefully. What's
1: the approach for this game, though? I mean, is it a game that we go and try and win, or do we do like we did last season at Manchester City and invite Chelsea onto us and and try and hit them on the break? Um, bearing in mind there might be you know one or two uh, defensive issues, or, mm. or you know, how, how how do you think he's going to approach it anyway?
2: I I think. I think he'll stick largely with the kind of 4-2-3-1 that we've seen. I I think he'll he'll try and go for the counter. And the reason I think that is because a draw is a much better result for Arsenal than it is for Chelsea, as things stand. Personally, I'd take a draw if you gave it to me now. Absolutely no problems. I'm not sure a draw does a lot for Chelsea, considering their start to the season. I think they're going to want to win, and to some extent they have to win because um, this gap between them and City is already opening up and they really want to kickstart their season as well. So I think, you know, they they may be slightly more inclined, you know, as far as Chelsea ever go for it, in inverted commas, they might be slightly more inclined to push it this time. Mm. Um, and I think Arsenal might be able to get some joy, um, you know, if we can keep it fairly tight at the back and not go behind, we might get some joy if they kind of start to push on to us, particularly in the second half. If it's nil-nil with 20 minutes to go, I think Chelsea will be more urgent than Arsenal are. Um, so I, I think he might be inclined to do that. But then again, I think there's an argument that Chelsea, because of the way they've been playing, will really, really go back to what they know. Um, and we all know what that means against Arsenal. Uh, for Chelsea, that means playing fairly deep, absorbing pressure and looking to hit us. So it's it's a really interesting one. Personally, I'd, I'd try and set up for the counter, particularly if we're going to play Theo Walcott up front. Mm. Um, I think that makes a lot more sense, but it's really intriguing. I'm really intrigued to see how Chelsea will approach it actually.
1: Yeah. On that then, just finally, does the, the need for defensive stability and perhaps a reaction to what happened in midweek, uh, does Per Mertesacker come back into the into the team to to offer a bit of calm assurance, a bit of leadership, uh, and experience? Gabriel has done extremely well. Been, I've been like so impressed with him. But maybe for a game like this, a manager's looking for his most experienced partnerships. If we're going to talk about that and and things that work together, certainly he and Koscielny have, have done that um, to good effect.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm going to qualify this by saying I think that. Per Mertesacker is such an underrated player, not just you know through the kind of wider football consensus, but by Arsenal fans as well. I think he brings so much, particularly in terms of his circulation of the ball, mm. his calmness, his leadership. But I would be inclined to stick with Gabriel and Koscielny. I think the defending we saw on um, on Wednesday night, lamentable as it was, particularly for the second goal, which I just thought was criminal, particularly in those circumstances. You know, we played two new, well, not new fullbacks, but, you know, we played our backup fullbacks, our backup goalkeeper. Actually, our defensive stability prior to that has been quite good mm. in the last few games, certainly since West Ham. It's been much better. And I think you put Czech back in there, Bellerin, Bellerin Monroe. I think you'll see, hopefully, see that stability come back anyway. And I just think, um, I think Gabriel against Diego Costa um, could potentially be very tasty, but yeah. I, I, I think he's he seems to me quite equipped for that kind of challenge. Um, and, I, I, you know, even on Wednesday, I thought Gabriel was the best of our defenders. Um, yeah, same. So I, I'd be inclined to keep him in. Had Per Murtisaka played on Wednesday, then, then maybe. I just don't think this is a game to really throw him back into, all told. I think there will be a measure of Defensive stability reintroduced, and I think that Gabriel's potentially equipped for that battle with Diego Costa. So, oh. I <laughs> and um, the the fact that you know he can swear at him in his own language as well, yeah. um, that that could be potentially interesting. Yes, um, Brazil doesn't have a lot of love for Diego Costa, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, given his international choices. So, you know, th- there's potentially a, a really good battle there, and I, I think it's one that that Gabrielle is is showing form for at the moment.
1: So you're you're saying uh, Gabriel red card then?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if if he really really hits the cunt, I'll forgive him. To be honest.
1: <laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, I would keep Gabriel in as well. He's been he's been excellent, and uh, yeah, the, it's that is tasty. If you'll if you'll dish it out to Arnadovich, you'll definitely dish it out to uh, Diego Costa. So uh, so let's. And not- I
2: think you can get in Diego Costa's head quite easily. Yeah, I think yeah. in the first couple of minutes, even if you just say something in his ear. I think, you know, you can get Costa wound up and put him off his game a little bit.
1: Mm. Well, fingers crossed. Um, it's uh, it's uh, shaping up to be a very tasty one all over the pitch. Um, we'll see how it goes. Tim Stillman, thanks very much. Pleasure. You can find Tim on Twitter, at Stillberto, at Stillberto. And, of course, you can read his column every Thursday on arsblog.com. So do check that out.
0: Raise your hand if you'd like to bid farewell to 2020. Now use that same hand to celebrate the new year with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code You at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's d r i z l y.com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy
1: Right then, time for my second guest of this particular Arscast, and we welcome back to the show John Cross, who has uh, just written a book about Arsene Wenger called The Inside Story of Arsenal Under Wenger. John, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks very much indeed for having me.
1: Right, a book about Arsene Wenger. It's one of those things that I think everybody's interested in, but there have been some before. What what brought this one about and what was the idea?
4: What, what sort of really prompted me was an idea that I had to kind of do a diary of a season in, initially, um, just because I think sometimes, particularly kind of then I was doing every single press conference, every single sort of game and really seeing him week in, week out. There's so much kind of detail. And I, I always think there's not so much known about the man, really. There's a mm-hmm. lot about the sort of the football manager. And I think sometimes he's hugely entertaining and engaging, um and then i kind of just with the publishers and i think it sort of made sense they wanted a bit more of an overall picture of him um i know that he he's not keen on doing unauthorized biographies if you like um so that's one thing i didn't really want to do so i kind of just wanted to do a picture of him and of arsenal under his management and um and so that's what that that's sort of how it evolved. It took a long time to get to do it I've got to say in a oh, lot right. of interviews and it's uh and and you know i'm now I see it i'm I'm really pleased with it
1: you say i mean obviously you're at the press conferences and you've been on the arsenal beat for a long time did Did he know that you were writing a book about him
4: yeah i, I let him know, and then I also spoke to someone who's who's very close with who kind of uh to to do an interview with and um You know, and actually, before it came out um, the other day, actually, I I um, told him it it was coming out, and then kind of also let him know that we're going to do some extracts in the mirror, which we did. So just out of courtesy, that I wanted to let him know and. Then I actually gave him a book at the training ground last week, actually, after the press conference. So um, it's quite funny, he sort of drew back his fist and said, oh, you know, because often <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy in the front row asking the difficult questions, sometimes the nice guy, but sometimes the nasty guy after defeats or, or setbacks. And he sort of drew back his fist in the sort of, well, laughing, I should add, and then basically said, oh, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. I reserve judgment on this. <laughs> Until after I've read it, really. So we always have quite a good jovial relationship. I think the the, the real regulars on the beat see mm. a, a really interesting, really humorous, amusing guy who delivers really sort of kind of good stories, anecdotes, and kind of, you know, he's so different sometimes to the, paint, uh, the picture that's painted. And that was sure. part of my mission, I think, to kind of get across this guy who I think so highly, I've got so much respect for him as a man and as a manager, I think, for everything that he's been through. And I think sometimes that's not always painted and I think it, it would be good, mm. not just for Arsenal fans, but I think football fans in general, to see what he's really like. Hopefully that comes across.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the idea of Arsene Wenger giving a journalist a bop on the nose like that, I think it would amuse <laughs> many people.
4: <laughs> he, did shake my, he did shake my hand at the end of it, having shaken it before as well. So, all right, I, th- I think he's quite confident right. that he a compliment.
1: You, you got away with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, as a character, and, and look, I think anybody who's watched any of the press conferences will know that he can be hugely entertaining, um, but football obviously is a, a very emotional game, so you can lurch between uh, great highs and, and, and deep lows very, very quickly. And, and as somebody who, as you said, has to ask the questions, how is he able to separate the personal from the professional because um, you might have to ask him a difficult question one week uh but the next week you've got to be there uh, again so i mean is, is he somebody who will i won't say uh, hold grudges but but it must be a challenge for him sometimes to to see the the difference between the person and and the job that they're doing
4: yeah i think i think he does i do think sometimes he will hang on to and remember things um and, and kind of, I think sometimes I think he can get disappointed by, by those perhaps he's really close to and likes a lot if they they end up asking difficult questions. But I think sometimes you've got to ask those questions. You get the, you know, basically when they lose 8-2 at Manchester United, I'll always remember Jeff Shreves, for example, who, who you know, he likes absolutely enormously. I know he does. Um, had to ask the, are you considering your future? Will you resign sort of question? I think as a journalist... I think that question needs to be asked. I'll tell you for why. I think the fans would want to know, what about your future? Because that's such a devastating defeat. I think it's I think it's a fair question to mm-hmm. be asked. People might not agree that he should be, but I think a lot of fans will say, well, hang on, you should ask that. And I think, you know, sometimes he, he will then hang on to that, as I think he probably did, you know, with, with Jeff a little bit. And I think similarly, if we've had a feisty few weeks, i remember one... Press conference after the, um, I think it was after the Bradford Gang, um, where I think at that time he was coming towards the end of that sort of era, where he probably had to compromise on the quality of his signings because of the financial restrictions um, over him, and you know, kind of getting into a discussion over the the qualities or not um of Jovinio I think we I always remember having a very feisty exchange and kind of I could feel that even for a couple of weeks afterwards he was a little bit cold um but generally he he doesn't and I think he moves on and I think it, that's good it's interesting what you say about personal I think he likes to separate the football from the personal I think often we'll have a little bit of a b- bit of banter um, and a little bit of fun, and kind of, you know, we'll often get. To, well, I tell what, I'm fascinated by politics, and he is too. And if there's a political event going on, I'll always try and make a bit of small talk before the press conference starts about that. So you've got to
1: about the uh, national anthem this week.
4: Yeah, I got to, <laughs> haven't I. If I get the opportunity, I'm going to. Uh, honestly, for sure, there's no doubt about it. We used to have a little bit of banter because I think you, you, you know, you see the the TV and the and the broadcast press conference. We then do our own little separate around a table at the front of the press conference. So we used to have this kind of mythical room, as I often call it. And, you know, we did then used to have even more sort of laughs and giggles, and hopefully that will come out in the book a little bit. Um, and, And then kind of, you know, these days, there's no doubt about it, because I think largely, because he's not been so successful, he has scaled back a bit on his media stuff and how much he wants to do. But I still think... As a media person, he really gets it. He knows when he can deliver. He knows what to deliver. And I still think he manages the media quite well, as, as he would see it. Mm.
1: He's been very... Um, what's the word I'm going to try and use here? I mean, from, from the point of view, when you talked about Gervinho there, for example, that mm. we know that he is a man who will, despite what he might feel in private, publicly, he won't go to town on one of his players. So it can be quite difficult, for example, in a situation like that where perhaps there is room for criticism of an individual, he simply, he simply won't do it, um, and and that creates a challenge for for him and for the journalist, I guess.
4: It, it does, and I think on the back of that, I think it was an interesting time for Jovino because I thought that Jovino coming in would be one of those players where Arsene Wenger got a hold of him and he's done it so many times and he's adapted the raw talent. To a brilliant player for the Premier League, and I thought Javinia has that real, had that real talent, and arguably he actually went on and improved after Arsenal, didn't he? So maybe Wenger did a little bit to a degree, but I found myself in this in this really sort of almost heated finger pointing discussion, you know, kind of where he was annoyed and riled by some of the criticism. It was obvious. And basically I said, well, you, you know, some of the, would would you accept that some of the players aren't what what you'd accept is Arsenal quality? And he said, you know, he really then challenged, you know, me and I think it was Steve Howard from The Sun, basically, name names. And so I, you know, I said, well, what about Jovinio then? Um, and, and basically his, his comeback on Jovino was, I think it was basically large, you know, he's, he said, well, he's a good player. And I said, well, is he, is he basically £11 million good player, basically? Would you not expect a bit more? And his sort of kind of biggest defence of Jovino <laughs> was that he didn't cost that much. He cost £8 million. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, you know, that, I think it was a difficult time for Wenger and, and I think he, he's so protective of his players to, to a fault you know, I remember, and I draw on this, that he was quizzed, I think, about Silvestre, in, in a Mikel Silvestre, in, a, in a, a, GF, or a supporters meeting, and again, he defended him, whereas I think most fans would accept that that was a disaster. But I think the only player I've ever known him question or criticise publicly was Nelson Vivas after the Leeds game in 1999
1: during oh, the running. You give flashback
4: to Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> when it was Vivas... Who lost his man after Nigel Winterburn gone off injured, and ultimately Arsenal lost the game because Vivas lost his man. And for once, Wenger, who's a terrible loser, and that's a good quality, finally kind of criticised Vivas personally, I think, and and kind of, you know, obviously Vivas was a bit of a disaster anyway, but. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that that's the only time when he's directly criticised a player. And I admire that loyalty towards players. You have to have it, I think. But other managers have done it. He's also fiercely loyal to his coaching staff, probably to a fault. And I, uh, I, I really admire and respect that, that players have made terrible mistakes down the years that have cost points or goals in big, big games. And yet, he's defended them and defended mm. them. And I think, I guess, that's many one of one of his many qualities. And that's why he get res, gets respect off players and off his uh, of, of his colleagues at Columbia. Sure. And, oh. and
1: and look, there have been situations where in press conferences and after games, where he said things that most of us, if you've got uh, an understanding of of the situation or the circumstance, we know that he's probably telling a little white lie. You yeah. know, covering up for for something else, and that protection of his players is, I don't know well, You know, some people might say, well, you know, there is something to be said for um, from time to time, making them uh, responsible for, for things that they haven't done right, but it's just not the way that he operates, is it?
4: No, it's not I, I remember, I think, that sort of kind of Alex Song leaving, for example and I, I, I think it was an Arsenal decision to sell Song um, based on a few things and yet, afterwards I think Wenger was asked, you know, kind of about why he felt the need to move song on, and he was always remaining respectful of Alex Song, even though I think behind the scenes there, you know, there were a few issues there.
1: There was a bus up I, with Steve Bald, wasn't there?
4: Yeah, I, I, be- I believe there's a few problems, <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, I, I think that's to be admired. And he defended him to the hilt and really sort of kind of fought Song's corner, for, for example. And uh, you know, it's uh, I think that's that's to be admired. I also think that he um, yeah, it sort of goes, in, goes into back for the players I think and, and kind of also I think what probably drives the medical team to distraction is that he'll always be very generous in his kind of defence about injuries just for example on Jack Wilshire at the moment you know, I think he knew that Jack Wilshire was going to be out a bit longer than he he, he said after that injury. And yet he said, um, you know, he'll be back after the international break. I'm pretty sure he realised that he probably wasn't. I don't actually see the benefit in saying that. But maybe he was just trying to be nice to Jack Wilshire and giving him encouragement. But I think then people then see, you know, he's out longer. Then it's cast as a setback and, and kind of a blow. And, you know, everyone gets a little bit angry and a bit angst. And kind of, uh, I don't think in any way Wenger is being malicious in that. But I think some of his medical updates are notorious for causing, I think, sort of of some problems for for the players. Because then it becomes a longer layoff when it's just always been the same. And, And I guess he's only ever doing it really to try and sort of protect the player, keep the player incentivized and he's doing it for the the right reasons I think his loyalty will always be with the players now I really admire that you,
1: you talk about him over the years changing and I think that's normal you know over the course of a 20-year tenure things are not the same uh, at the at, at this stage as they would be at the beginning but in terms of the way that he deals with the press and his availability to the press how much do you think that change has been driven by the The way that the press has had to change and the demands that are on the press to get stories that now generate immediate clicks and hits, and we know that there is a desire and a demand for that, that the the way that football coverage has gone. You know, for example, I don't know why we saw 25 stories this week about some bloke sitting in uh, at a Sunderland game wearing a half-Sunderland, half-Arsenal shirt. Like, who <laughs> gives a shit? I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it was on your website, not your specific, but it was on the mirror. But anyway, I'm just saying that, you know, now that the internet has created a new kind of coverage of, of football and, and some would say that it's been dumbed down a little bit, <laughs> And you can see, if you watch the press conferences on a regular basis, that very often there's one or two who are trying to drive the press conference in a certain direction. Mm. And we'll ask him specific questions about a specific thing, whether it's transfers or whether it's trying to get a rise out of uh, the relationship with Jose Mourinho for example that the questions aren't necessarily the best questions they could ask but they're questions that are designed to to bring about stories and and headlines do you think he's reacted to that in the in the way that he he deals with the press
4: I think that there's been I think there's been a few factors that's come together I think back in the day I think if people think and I know a lot of Arsenal fans because I see the reaction on Twitter do think this that that Jose Mourinho is now the media darling. I think perhaps they might realize now that actually he's probably not because Chelsea like all other teams are going through a bad spell and so he's getting criticism like everyone. Mm. But I think back in the day I think that Arsene Wenger was back page gold and I still think he can be. But I think you could go to Wenger on a Friday and basically think, you know what he's going to he's going to give us a sort of a, you know, the story of the day because Several, several things. I think he speaks really well. I think his insights into the game are fascinating. He always delivered a soundbite, whether it be kind of, you know, everyone thinks they've got the prettiest wife at home or, you know, ridiculing Fergie for a lack of apology by saying, you know, he's probably... Did he send it by horse?
3: Yeah.
4: Um, you know, there's always a quip and he's brilliant and that's why he's so humorous. But the other thing that, that sort of demanded it be on the back page was that Arsenal were incredibly successful. And I think that's the difference. I think while that has ebbed away and they're no longer quite the leading club that they were, I think that his sort of back page gold reputation has faded a little um, because of those factors. I think there's definitely been a slight falling out of love with the press. Uh, I mean, I kind of mentioned the mythical room earlier and it was, it was funny really, because we used to do this press conference, then go and see him in the room and kind of, it was just us. And we'd often have a chat and do a little bit off the record, a bit of fun. And it was good. And, you know, he'd also be very much more accessible. I have to say, I and mean, we still do, you know, from time to time, but he, he would, you could get hold of him and, and stuff and check stuff. And, and I've always made a point of always sort of kind of, you know, being respectful on, on things like that. But it's. I, I think he reached a point where he felt that he was probably doing too much and I think the strain, and I think part of that strain was not being successful in that time mm. and he felt some of the criticism was harsh and unfair I remember there was one thing about where he felt that sort of, the headlines were particularly unfair after a, a row after an Everton game I think uh, midweek um, at the Emirates and he felt that some of the coverage was unfair and at that point he said look I'm going to I'm going to scale it back a little bit from here and um, and kind of he agreed to sort of have a chat and sort of review at the end of the season. That's never really sort of happened. But I think, you know, I still think he's very good. I think a few bits and pieces behind the scenes, a bit sort of his personal life, sort of kind of maybe coloured his vision of the media and sort of grouped it together. He didn't like some of the criticism, which I think a lot of managers sort of tend to find difficult to take. But I think generally still... Kind of quite likes doing the media you're right he doesn't like some of the stuff that that specialist in failures i i i I, th- I thought was really harsh and I say that in the book mm. because I still may I still have this row with some of my colleagues that that was asked on the back of a you know bit of sort of kind of banter between Rogers and Mourinho in the press, and he was saying like i don't mind admitting you know we're going for the title and you know kind of you know, maybe it's the fear of failure that prevents others. He was doing that in a general way. He really, really was. Mm. And kind of, you know, I think then sort of I think the question was put to him, you know, Vengus says you're afraid, you know, to, to Mourinho, Wenger says you're afraid of failure. He didn't really. He was on a general sense. And I, I will still chew the fat. And a lot of my colleagues will say, no, you're wrong. He, 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 that's exactly what he meant. He knew what he was saying. Maybe he did, but I don't think we know that we did. And I do think then that kind of really set the tone for that running. And it was nasty for a few weeks and he was really annoyed and Mm. upset. And I, I can understand that. But I think when he's, when he's on song and when he's in a happy place and when he's winning trophies, which is the most important thing of all, because believe you me in the run into 2013, 14, he was in a dark place. He was in such a dark place. That's not driven by the media. That's driven by Arsenal being under pressure and fearing missing out on the top four and fearing of not reaching the FA Cup final. And I, I, I think actually, while I think he's slightly gone down the media pecking order, he's slightly fallen out of love with the media a little bit as, as compared to what he was. I think more than anything else, his coverage and the tone of his coverage is far and away dictated the most. By Arsenal's results and success on the pitch.
1: Yeah, I mean you could see the you could see the years falling off him after uh, after the FA Cup win in, in 2014. <laughs> you really could. Honestly,
4: the look- different man in 2014. A few of us saw him in Brazil, and we had such a laugh. You know, he's great company, and that's what he was. You know, back in the day when when we used to see, when I used to see him in sort of Sotwell House, which is the sort of the hotel near the training ground. It was great you could sit down have coffee have a chat he's brilliant mm. it's, Honestly, honestly was such a personable guy and he can be that and we can still have a the odd laugh on a trip and stuff but he there's no doubt about it he's he has sort of changed his tone and i get that mm. i think that's i know exactly where you're coming from on the on the different style of media different style of questions where's it all going and kind of you know, I, I sometimes I look at it and I, I get a bit disappointed. I, I, I do think sometimes I, th- I think, blimey, I wish we could have, wish we could have checked that or wish we could have done that. And mm. you know, some, I mean, I know for a fact that sort of, you know, Arsenal, for example, was raising money. This completely by the by, raising money for refugees from ticket sales. They did it quite and unassumingly, as the other clubs did. Didn't blow their trumpet like other sort of foreign clubs did. And actually, then the Premier League clubs get criticised for not for being silent on it. They weren't silent on it. They were too busy acting on it. And yeah. kind of, I think sometimes I think you know some of our sites can be a little bit too easy to jump on things. When actually, a bit of kind of research and a bit of a few relationships here and there go a long way. And I think it would be nice. I think to to return sometimes to some of the more traditional journalism,
3: shall I say.
1: Sure, sure. I don't think anybody would argue with that in the slightest. John, um, best of luck with the book. Uh, Arsene Wenger, the inside story of Arsenal under Wenger, is out now. Lots of uh, good behind-the-scenes stuff in there, so uh, uh, good luck with it.
4: Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
1: Uh, You can follow John on Twitter, if you like, at John Cross Mirror. And uh, John has very kindly uh, given us three copies of the book to give away. So... If you'd like to win a copy of Arsene Wenger: The Inside Story of Arsenal Under Wenger published by published by Simon and Schuster. Yes. The second best duo with Simon in their name. Well, third best, Simon and Garfunkel, then the Simon and Simon, but they had only one Simon, but they were two Simons. If you get what I'm talking about, but it was only one Simon in the name. But anyway, Simon and Schuster, they publish it, and we have three copies to give away. All I would like you to do is send me an email, please, to competition at arsblog.com and tell me what was the name of the Japanese club that Arsene Wenger was manager of before he joined Arsenal. Very simple. Send the entry, please, to competition at arsblog.com, and three lucky winners will be announced on next week's Arscast. So um, really all we have left is to uh, look ahead to the game on Saturday. That's tomorrow morning, 12.45 kickoff. Just what you need after a midweek European trip to go away from home and have an early kickoff. I mean, it couldn't be any better. And look... We don't have any team news yet because it's Thursday evening and uh, the players, I guess, would have been off more or less today. They probably would have come in in the afternoon because they flew straight out of Zagreb uh, last night. Would have got in very late, so they would have had the morning at least off. The manager... We 'll have to assess his players, so we 're probably going to wait and see what kind of uh what kind of team news we 've got ahead of this one. All I can do is hope that Bellerin and Ramsey rested in midweek, probably because they were feeling a little ache or strain here and there are fit. I think we'll see a return to the lineup to the uh, same starting 11 that beat Stoke. Certainly, nobody who played during the week has done enough to force himself into the manager's thinking to start this game. And quite how we approach it remains to be seen. Do we try and take advantage of Chelsea's recent bad form in the league and have a go? I think that would be a little ambitious. We have to remember, despite the fact that they're very far down the table, it's still A, early in the season, and they are still the champions, and we have to approach this as a game against the champions. I think any other way of looking at this game and going into this game could prove to be fatal, so maybe we will uh, play a a bit more of a cautious game like we did at Man City Away, perhaps. Uh, A draw in this game wouldn't be a bad result for us. Certainly, coming off the back of the midweek results, you can not say that we should really you know, take it to them and have a go. We're not playing that well. We're just not playing that well to to do that. But I think we're more than capable of getting something from this game because of Chelsea's recent uh, bad form. Of course, they'll be really up for this. They'll be looking to use this game as a way of kick-starting their season. And we've got to be aware of that. But we do have players who can score goals. We are creating chances. We're just not finishing enough of them. And hopefully, when we do get a side of goal uh, tomorrow against Chelsea, we can take it. It would be good, wouldn't it, if Alexis could get off the mark this season? That would be good. Theo Walcott's going to get the nod up front, of course. Shiru is not going to get back into the side after after what happened in midweek. Walcott has scored. He's a streaky goal scorer. Maybe he can get another one against Chelsea. But um, you've got to look at this as a game in which we've got to get something. Win isn't hugely important. A draw would be fine. Uh, But losing is to be avoided at all costs because we have to continue to, to break down these little psychological barriers that we have against big teams and against big teams away from home and Chelsea. If they are struggling right now, they're still a big team, and this is going to be a very, very tough game. So we've got to pick ourselves up after what happened in Zagreb, make sure that we get something from this game, hopefully play well. If we could take three points, that would be absolutely fantastic, because we've got a, a tricky week coming up, obviously, with uh, Capital One Cup, I think next week, isn't it? Yeah, that's Capital One Cup next week against Tottenham at White Hart Lane. Then I think it's Leicester, high-flying Leicester, uh, in the Premier League next weekend. So three points would would be very nice, but I think we have to make sure that this is a game that we don't lose and don't further compound our our misery this week. We don't want to have the Arsenal equivalent of the centre-half saving the ball on the line, denying you a glorious 25, 30-yard goal in your final game. I'm not, I'm not bitter about that at all. Really not. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra. We'll look back at what happened against Chelsea. We'll look forward to the Capital One Cup game. So until then, have yourselves a great weekend. Come on, the Arse. I'll talk, uh, talk to you on the next one.
3: To Holy God FM, the sweet, sweet sound of Laura Brannigan there and self control. I attended her funeral in 2004, and it's true there was an unfortunate incident with Thomas Dalby who got a little carried away with some of his shenanigans, but it's all forgotten now. Don't forget you can get in touch with us here in the studio by texting 555 Holy God or by email, and we have an email here from Oliver, who says, Dear Holy God FM, Hello. Hello, Oliver. I'm not in a very good place at this moment, he says. I'm feeling very down. I have a sadness upon me that a handjob from a saint couldn't cure. I don't know what to do. I feel bereft that nobody understands me Or is on my side. It's very difficult to go to work every day. People criticise me. They call me names. And I just don't know what to do. Please can you help me? And also play one of my favourites from the 1980s. Yours, Oliver. Well, Oliver, it certainly sounds like a tough situation for you to be in and I could sit here and pontificate all day long about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But what you should do is just man the fuck up and score a couple of goals and you'll find people will be much nicer to you. You also asked for one of your favorites from the 1980s and this is it. Except it isn't it. The song you wanted was a big bag of shite so I'm playing this one instead. If this doesn't catch you out of your phone call, nothing will. This is imagination and just an illusion. I always love doing that.